All right. So uh, good afternoon to all those tuning in. My name is David Walters. And for those of you who don't know, I run the book review blog, fanfightaddict.com. So uh, first off, welcome to TBRCon 2021. Thank you so much for spending some of your day with us amidst, you know, working and school, taking care of kids, which I technically probably should be doing, uh, surviving the ongoing pandemic uh, and attempting to crawl out from in your TBR piles, which, you know, if you're a blogger, you know how hard that is. Um, so we have a massive amount of authors uh, joining us today and the rest of the week to discuss topics ranging from world building to history, inspiration, character development, apparently police sirens, uh, and even some talk on editing, which I know is everybody's favorite subject. Uh, but before we get into it, uh, while this is a completely free convention, we do have three amazing charities we're making donations for. Uh, there's our shelter, No Kid Hungry, and World Wildlife Fund. Uh, there are links provided below, but they may be a little temperamental. Uh, I haven't actually tested them out, but you can always go to fanfiatic.com and click on the TBRCon21 link at the top of the page. Uh, any and all donations are appreciated. But our first can, uh, panel of the con is entitled Global Science Fiction and Fantasy. And uh, I could introduce all of the panelists here, but I'll be doing them a disservice. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So we're going to go this way. So we're going to start at the top and then go down. Is it the same for everyone? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll start that way. So Gautam, if you want to start. Oh, me? Oh, OK, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Gautam Bhatia. I'm from India. Um, last five years, I've been an editor with the Strange Horizons magazine, uh, editing nonfiction articles, writing reviews. Uh, and last year, I published my uh, my debut novel called The Wall with HarperCollins India. Uh, that's where I am right now. So, and thanks a lot for having me here. Absolutely. Um, so I'm Deck Matthews, uh, which is a pseudonym. Uh, my real name is Matt. Uh, Matthew Ward, actually, which is weird. Um, but so I go by Deck Matthews. Um, so as not to be confused with another uh, Matthew Ward. Um, I write uh, fantasy. Uh, of the sort of heroic, almost high fantasy genre. Um, and I, uh, I'm here in Canada on a very, very snowy day. Hi, I'm Robert Reddick, um, and I've been writing epic fantasy now for about 15 years. I'm in the middle of my second series. Um, and it's, this one's a anti-war war story um, and also a plague story, which preceded the goddamn pandemic we're living in, and I definitely wouldn't have uh, uh, touched that hot wire if I knew what was coming, but that's what happens. And I also have, um, I guess I have a pretty long on-again, off-again career in international development and environmental uh, environmental justice. Um, so uh, this is a topic that, even if it's an impossible topic, I'm honored to be part of. Luke? All right. <laughs> Uh, my name is Lou Tarzian. I am the author of the Shadow Twins books. Uh, it's dark psychological fantasy. Um, besides that, I work as a special education paralegal by day and a semi-writer by night. <laughs> Uh, I'm Andrea Stewart, and I write uh, fantasy and science fiction. Uh, my debut epic fantasy, uh, The Bone Char Daughter, came out in September, and uh, next up is going to be The Bone Char Emperor, uh, and it's an Asian-inspired epic fantasy. Awesome. 
My name is Yaroslav Barsakov. By the way, it's my real name because it, somebody would be crazy to use this as a pseudonym. <laughs> so it's got to be a real name. Oh, and by the way, I have to be, I didn't know that Gautam was an editor at, at Strange Horizons, so I have to be really careful what I'll say during this call. Otherwise, I'll probably Not never get published <laughs> at Strange Horizons ever. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a writer. Uh, I write science fiction and fantasy, and I think in equal measures. Uh, I'm a member of CEFWA, and I'm an author of uh, Tower of Modern Straw, uh, a novella which is uh, coming out from Metaphorosis on February 21st. And I'm, it's great to be with you all. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so uh going to kind of start off with a... I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll discuss it kind of as a whole, but I, I, I want to start with one in particular. So uh, so I want to discuss bringing in pieces of one's own culture into works of science fiction and fantasy. But Yaroslav, I want to start with you. What parts of the culture you grew up in find their way into your writing? You know, it's 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 a very interesting question because I feel that bringing your cultural background generally into into your fiction is um, is a kind of a minefield. You can't bring too much of it because then it will bring uh, your fiction too far away from your audience. You know? Because, for example, the, the readers in Portugal, uh, they would probably would not be so attuned to, to what, whatever the Russian writers are writing because they haven't had the chance to develop the taste for it. And vice versa, the Russian readers won't have the chance to, to develop the taste for the uh, writings of the Portugal writers, Portuguese writers. So um, if you, I feel that if you write, really, really write something coming truly from a cultural background it may not get past the uh, the first readers you know it may not get past past the um, to the editors but uh like all the russian writers infuse russia into their writing still it's uh, there is some version of russia in every single every single book it, it like everything the book has ever written it has russian characters or russia in it and for me it's something um something undefinable because I remember once I wrote a story, uh, it was about a doctor who invented a procedure called personality graft and a family brings in their son for this procedure and the doctor tries to talk them out of it. And I gave the story to a friend of mine, Tolia Bililovsky, whom Andrea probably knows from, from Codex, who is a great short story writer. And he said, well, yeah, you know, it's a good story. It's fine, but there is something off about it. Something up. I'll I'll get back to you in two days, in a couple of days. And in two days, he gets back to me and says, "You know what? Uh, it's it's a good story, but it's uh, about a Russian doctor. It takes place in Russia. The family is Russian. The boy is Russian." And I said, "Come on, Talia, this is this is bullshit. Can't be." <laughs> I read the story, and yes, it is about a Russian boy. It is about a Russian doctor. So I don't know. It's 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 some kind of it's some sense of Russian fatalism. You know that you know some whatever you do the fate will uh, will have the upper hand I, I think this is the defining characteristic which is uh, which permeates um, permeates the writing of the of the Russian authors and like in the Tower of Monstro I also have a version of Russia so this is that's a given that's a given <laughs> it's got to be there <laughs> it's got to be there it's got to be there it's like a snail you know you carry it home on your own back uh, Robert, I want to ask you the same question because I know uh, I know you've you've traveled quite a bit, uh, so you could probably bring in multiple. Well, or I could just cause trouble, which seems to be what I usually do. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm reflecting on this question and thinking, 
what is my culture? What is my culture? What is my culture? What does that mean? That sort of question, um, which usually makes people's eyes, eyeballs roll. But um, you know, at, the, at the most sort of simplistic level of, yeah, I'm a, I'm a white American male of a certain income bracket all my life. And um, those are cultures within, you know, the easily defined culture that maps to the country of the United States. And then you can break that down. And I'm a, I'm a Southerner, you know, I'm, I'm a Southerner born in the late 60s, all these different things. But, um, you know, so I, I think one answer to your question is that no matter, you know, and, and Yaroslav was kind of saying this too, perhaps, if, if, I've, if I've read you rightly, Yaroslav, that um, you cannot not be writing from where you come from any more than an actor can choose um, not to draw from the emotional uh, canvas of her life or his life. It's... Um, however much you transform it and transmute it and move it uh, from one overt context to another, you're always drawing on that, especially at the really emotional and interpersonal levels. I mean, we have, we have norms and expectations and, and understandings of what is how people behave that we have learned and that are to some degree culturally shaped. Um, and that's just going to be there. Um, I think uh, among the challenges that we face, especially, you know, uh, let me let me my spouse hates how much i use the pronoun we um one of the challenges that i think i will always face is trying to be as conscious as i can um as a as a white american male not to um not to mindlessly assume that these uh behaviors and norms that i think of as somehow universal necessarily are and uh, if I'm making sense, it's um, yeah. it's a uh, it's a temptation, especially when you're surrounded by such a, a blast of um, of stories and narratives from all directions, saying that you are the norm. You know, you are you are the the principal story that everyone has listened to, should listen to, forever will listen to. And when you get that message, um, to to successfully undermine it and question it, I think is is the challenge I see before myself because I'm going to inevitably have so much of my culture in just how I interpret reality. Um, but then it's, it's just you know the, the coda to that really briefly is um, I would like to you know flatter myself I guess that uh, my culture is also the nerds I, I sought out desperately and in secret uh, before there was such a thing as the internet who happened to have read the same books as I had. Um, including let's say you know there was for a long time i thought the um you know my my secret people were the the ones who were in love with uh, bratia karmazovi with the brothers karmazov um and you know probably even earlier than that um cool. tolkien you know i i happened to uh, work in a, a a farm where some um soviet kids were brought in in 19 uh uh, uh 1989, the fall of 89, uh, summer of 89, excuse me. And, um, you know, the Soviet Union was ceasing to exist, but uh, they, they were still green-lighted. And, um, and their translator and sort of group leader was a, um, had, had recently left uh, the uh, Soviet army. He was, he was um, uh, Kazakh. And um, he was an amphibious assault vehicle driver. And as different for me as anyone I've probably ever met. And after about two weeks together, he very quietly said, the best book ever written in the history of the world is The Lord of the Rings, you know. And I was like, brother. <laughs> and, and so anyway, maybe that's my culture. And now I've said enough. So.
<laughs> Anybody else want to take that on? Um, yeah, sure. I'll jump in. So uh, it's funny that you were saying that you can't help but to bring in your culture. Um, I've kind of had interesting experience with that just because um, I, you know, my both my parents are immigrants. My mom immigrated from China and my dad immigrated from Scotland. And um, I was born in Canada and raised in a bunch of different places in the U.S. And I grew up reading um, a very like typical classic uh, farm boy uh, becomes a hero kind of fantasy. So when I started writing, that was basically all that I wrote because I thought that's what fantasy was. <laughs> so it wasn't until more recently, I think, where I started to see um, a lot more um, diverse uh, fantasy fiction being written that it felt more like something that you know was possible that was sellable um, and I think that's kind of important today just that we have all this diverse fiction because I feel like then people who um, are reading that will feel like that they are able to bring their culture into it and that it will still be accessible to people. And not, not everything's Robert Jordan, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next. Yeah, it's Brendan Sanderson as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I guess I guess I guess I can I can go next. Um, and I, this is a really good question, and I thought I'd, I'd answer it by to an example. So in, in the great Indian epic, the the Ramayan, there is a story of of two brothers who are two giant birds, uh, close to vultures, but yeah. Um, Garuda, Jatayu and, and Sampati. And so they have this kind of habit of, of racing each other into the sky. And, uh, and Jatayu, who is the younger brother, is more enthusiastic. Um, he's, you know, he's kind of energetic. He really wants to fly as, as high and as, as fast as he can. And so one day they're flying and, and Jatayu flies higher and higher. And Sampati says, be careful, like you're flying too close to the sun. And Jatayu is like, you know, I mean, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to go keep flying. And finally, he flies too close to the sun, and his wings start to burn. Uh, and at that point, the elder brother, Sampati, like, races up to protect him, shields him with his wings. So Jatayu survives. Um, Sampati's wings are, are burnt, and he kind of falls down to the ground. And then Jatayu kind of goes on and plays a very important role in the rest of the epic. Uh, now, this is a very familiar story, and you recognize it as being something like Icarus and Daedalus, right? Um, but it's not quite like it's a little different. Um, the motivations are different. The core of, of, of it is being, you know, a certain kind of hubris leading to a fall. That's the same basic idea. Um, and because of you know, India's colonial history, when I grew up, I grew up both listening to the Ramayana at home. And every time I went to a bookshop, there were all these books about the Greek myths, the Greek legends, you know, and so on. Um, so I grew up listening on the one hand to the story of Sampadi and Jatayu and also reading the story of Daedalus and Icarus. Um, and so now when I'm writing and I, you know, I, want a, I want a parable for hubris and a fall, I basically have these two, two similar yet different traditions to draw on. And I can even do like a mix, like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a mix of them and, and, you know, and ultimately have, have a story that, that incorporates both, uh, which is what I've actually done in my writing. So I think that in, in, in that sense, I, I guess like the, the kind of, in, in, in some ways, of course, colonial history, you know, is damaging in many ways. And, and you know, kind of it, it does it does things to your psyche and to your country. At the same time, it does mean that when you're growing up, 
um, you have just by definition, you know, access to, to two very different streams uh, of literature, and you don't even have to make an effort. They just they they come to you, and so I think that then that reflects finally in your writing in very interesting ways. So that's been my experience. Um, you know, it's, it's a very very chaotic mix of 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 two of at least two traditions at all times. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, find, I find it kind of interesting talking to some, uh, you know, book readers and bloggers, uh, you know, in, I guess, in countries that books aren't as readily available. Uh, because, you know, I feel like, you know, you're in the UK and the U you're in the US, you get pretty much anything and everything that you could ask for. And whereas, you know, they are being wait to be translated, or there's not a deal with a specific country or so forth. And so it's, it's hard to to talk, I guess, to somebody in a country that doesn't have that availability. Um, but it's, I guess it's nice to know that there's something that's at least similar to it. And you can go, okay, well, it's, it's kind of like this, <laughs> even, even though you, you can't read it and so forth, but you, I guess there's a, there's a little bit of an understanding there uh, that, okay, you may not be able to get, you know, this book that was released in 2020, but it has similar aspects to a book that was maybe released, you know, five, 10 years ago that they do have available and they can read. But also in, in the English reading world, we can't get so many wonderful things or even even um, many works that are written in English. We never see in the West, which I find a real shame if they're not if they're not considered um, great marketable commodities to the Western audience. We may never see them. Yeah, so I'll throw that in there. Yeah, um, so something <laughs> this is going to be interesting and i think this will probably go on for a while so something i don't think believe gets you know i don't like it's talked about enough in science fiction and fantasy is food um <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know everybody eats and shouldn't characters in our stories do the same thing i mean how does food help bring someone into your world <laughs> i have a lot to say about this i'll let somebody else go first <laughs> uh, andrew is gonna andrew's gonna be the last one to talk about it then. <laughs> how about deck you want to you want to start you know i i don't know does, does food really not get talked about enough like have any like i remember a lot of fantasy and and this is sort of like martin type of thing where you're just like talking about the food and and I'm like, I don't really care what they're eating. I just want Jamie to kill somebody. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, maybe like for me, I don't spend a lot of time. Um, there's certain times where you want to use um, food to kind of set the tone of maybe a locale. So like you walk into a tavern, what are they having? Are you eating like greasy chicken and like, questionable potatoes or some like, you know, recently caught pheasant. And that kind of like subtly tells you something about the type of establishment you're in. Um, or like if you're at a, you know, at a feast at the King's banquet or, or whatever, some of that kind of stuff might tell you a little bit about it. But for me, that's about as far as um, I tend to take it. Um, but I'm probably just kind of weird and I like very detailed things. <laughs> so that's, pro that's probably my fault. <laughs> it's also, I'm also worried about like messing this up. Cause like, you know, like I just like make chicken and, and like, I'm very like, I, I have very bland sort of tastes. So like people don't want to read about that kind of stuff. So, and I don't want to pretend that I'm, that I know a bunch of other stuff. So. Uh, the one area where I, I do sometimes think it's kind of cool um, 
is, and I do this in a bunch of places where, or different areas where you mix something tangible, um, like a like a potatoes or something, and then you have them done in like a sauce that's something made up, right? So you just add these little bits of, of flavor that really aren't meant, there's no plot device or anything. It's just these little bits of world building where you kind of get to feel like this isn't really my world. It's just something kind of similar. Um, that's probably about as close as I would go with the food. Um, but I'll do the same thing often with, with animals. Um, if I'm describing like a, a forest or something. Um, so um, you'll talk about, you know, I see a fox and this, and then some sort of other animal um, that is obviously not quite anything we, we recognize, um, which is tangential to what you asked. But I like to do those sorts of things in my writing to kind of create this sense of a world that is familiar, but also different in a, in a way. By the, way, by the way, I'm going to start a podcast called Questionable Potato. <laughs> yeah. I'll because, because I have to know what makes a potato questionable. And I think Shelly asked that question too. Oh, I, I have left potatoes in my basement and not getting to them, gotten to cooking them um, long enough. And they're definitely questionable. Um, they, <laughs> they look like alien potatoes. At a certain point, they start questioning you, and then you know. <laughs> when they when they start talking back, you know they belong in the garbage, right? Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Luke? Um, you know, I think I'm sort of in the same boat as Deck. I don't put too much thought into the food um, and the stuff I write. I I lean more towards the alcohol aspect. I what does about me as a person, um, but a lot of the stuff I write is. Um, I, I, I feel like in fiction and in real life, alcohol sets a tone, not not, necess in, not necessarily in like a belligerent kind of uh, crazy manner, but as a way to sort of like mellow things out and be introspective. And so when I, when I use that stuff um, in the Shadow Twins book, it's usually at a very introspective moment for a character. Gotcha. I'm just looking at the chats. I promise at some point in one of my books, I will have questionable potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> I put that out there. I'll find a way. Yeah, but I'm happy that, that, that Luke said about alcohol because I have a lot of that stuff in my writing. And I was I was I was afraid to admit that because this was like a, yeah, that's of course, of course he has alcohol in his stories, you know. Why wouldn't he? But I agree that alcohol sets sets the tone and very for very many scenes. It's, it's it can be introspective, it can be also very depressive, you know. Once once the person goes in a you know on a, on a drinking binge. And there is one one such episode in my in my recent novella. Anybody else want to tell Henry, the suspense is killing oh. me. <laughs> I'll pop in. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so my family is really into food. So that was something that I wanted to reflect in in my book. Um, and I think that it's not just you know, I I don't so much do the pages long descriptions of like what everybody's eating, but. Um, you know, my book is set on an archipelago of islands. So depending on what island you are on, like they'll be having like a different specialty on there. Um, there's a lot of street food. Um, and I think it's not just the food, but it's like the rituals around the food that kind of show 
the culture a little bit, like um, how do people gather to eat and um, who is responsible for preparing the meal, uh, things like that. Um, I, I promise I don't <laughs> have just scenes of that. I think that you can um, have food be a very large part of your book and still uh, integrate it with the plot and character development. Um, so, you know, there's like a scene in The Monchard Daughter where one of my characters goes to have a meal with this family and uh, she ends up like offering to help do some of the food prep. And that's like a thing that kind of ingratiates herself on this family and um, kind of makes her feel like a little bit more a part of them. So I think like, yeah, I think pages long descriptions of food. I know some people are into that. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> um, but I think that not just the descriptions of the food, but um, all the things surrounding it can really uh, highlight the parts of the culture you're trying to bring in. See, I think I think my issue is, is that, see, I, I grew up playing role playing games and I didn't just do beginning to end straight main quest. I always diverted. So I wanted to know. You know, if I went into a room, I got to look at every single table, shelf, dresser, etc., and I've got to see what's in there. And I feel like that's just kind of that's kind of come over to my reading. So I have to know as soon as somebody enters a room, what does it look like? Are the floors dirty? You know, that's just how my mind works. Uh, it's probably also a little bit of OCD. Um, but uh, can, I, can, I, can I just like add a brief point to what Andrea said? I, I found very interesting. I, I, so I, I really agree, and I think that that the interesting thing is that it's, what we ultimately see, of course, is the food. Um, but but how do the harvest cycles, you know, affect the politics of a society? Uh, you know, who is doing the growing, and and you know, what is their position in that society? The class position. Uh, how is the food produced, harvested, and then finally, like who does the does the cooking? Uh, you know, so so everything that leads up to actually seeing the food on the table, uh, I think also can reveal a lot about how that world is built. Um, and 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 I find that as fascinating as you know, then seeing the food because the the, the backstory of the food I think is really fascinating way of bringing in your world um, uh, and, and revealing parts about it that that otherwise would remain hidden. It's a great idea, by the way. I'll, I'm taking notes. <laughs> yeah, in, in India, I think we have a huge farmer's protest going on. So this is on top of everyone's minds right now. Yeah. I mean, certainly, it, 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 it may be easy when we are food secure to forget how much food has shaped the world we live in. And trade in food was, I mean, certainly not the only thing. There were so many other things as well. But it was a, a big part of the colonial history that um, gave rise to so many of the power structures that we, we still live with now. And um, yeah, I mean, I, my only comment, that I, I also find food fascinating and I, and, um, and like you, I, I think I enjoy, um, I enjoy so many ways into a, uh, to a world to make it real. And certainly the more senses you engage, the better. And, and so food is a, is a natural in that sense. And also it is, um, it's so intrinsic to to real life as opposed to just sort of glamorous action life, which um, you know has sometimes perhaps been too privileged in in epic fantasy and you know the little playground I've been in for years now. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, reflecting as as we all been talking um, in in both my stories. I mean, the first one that the Chatheran voyages 
largely set on a ship and it's sort of a transcontinental voyage. And then, um, you know, the book I just turned in in this new series, um, similarly, it's, it's people um, in, in extremes in this sense, in this case, in a desert, um, and they're um, walking with camels across a, a desert twice as wide as the Sahara. And, um, and so in both cases, I mean, food comes in because of its, its strange scarcity. It, you know, the, the, in the nautical story, that changes a lot, depending on ports of call and, and how, how often the, in the sea they are. In the middle of the desert, it's, it's a, it was a learning process for me about what it takes to carry enough food, both for you and for the animals. I mean, the, the silage that you have to carry to keep those, um, those camels going is not insignificant, you know, wonders of, of evolution that camels are, they still need calories. And, um, and yeah, so I was, I was thinking about scurvy with my sailors and then uh, scurvy and related, um, you know, nutrient deficiency and what that does to you mentally and physically in the middle of the desert. You know, it was always has been continues to be a, a real challenge. And it's one of the things that can be dramatized along with battles and so on. I mean, I think um, uh, Ursula Le Guin does this beautifully in uh, The Left Hand of Darkness when they have to cross the, the uh, ice cap. And yeah. what in the world are they going to eat? And, the, you know, the, just the bare physical survival of it is part of what she dramatizes. And we find out reading her her commentary that she was reading the Shackleton expedition and so on and, and deriving it from that. But yeah, food is part of what makes the, the body machine work. We ignore it at our peril, I guess. Yes, exactly. No, and that's, it's, it's the physicality of it really, because it, it engages our mirror neurons. It engages our, you know, kind of, uh, we try to imagine immediately what it's, what it feels like to, to be hungry or to be, you know, so um yeah damn and and by the way what you've mentioned left hand of, hand of darkness this 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 uh, when, when they traverse this this goblin uh the the uh when they go through the ice this is like the the main point of the story right so it's it's uh there they finally understand each other the, the two characters so it's, it builds up to that and everything that they, they experience the hardships they frame the story and bring it out really amazing yeah anybody else want to touch on it before we move on okay <laughs> um all right so general general discussion kind of again uh how does being in your respective country or region help or hinder your worldview especially when it comes to world building and it kind of focuses on an earlier part that we talked about, <laughs> especially now in a pandemic where you really can't go anywhere. Like, like for me, it's very simple. If I write certain things, people will come to my home and <laughs> they will take me away. You know, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not really in Russia. I'm, I'm, I'm living in Austria, but they will still come to me and they will still take me away. I'm just joking. Uh, for me, I, I'm as I mentioned, Canadian. Um, I live in Ottawa. Um, so sort of two things I kind of look at is, is sort of the vastness of terrain. There's a lot of empty space around me. Um, so I, I sort of think of that in, in sort of large spaces. Um, I also tend to think in terms of like trying to create a multicultural society. Um, even though I'm a very white person and grew up in a very sort of like I grew up in small town Ontario, which um, is very sort of insular to some degree. So 
Um, I don't have a lot of like firsthand experience um, kind of things. So, but I'm still kind of aware of it and I want to create a world that um, is not just people like me, but that there's, there's other people. Um, so I try to, to figure that out. And of course um, there has to be a great white North. Um, so I have a, I have a place called the ice range and, and there's a whole thing there. So um, yeah, so I'm basically space, multicultural and snow are sort of the um, kind of things. There hasn't been a lot of snow in what I've, I've written yet, but, but it's coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Yeah. <laughs> we'll plug there. <laughs> and I think I think for me, uh, for me living in a country that's effectively a subcontinent, um, you know, does does two things. One is that you are always aware of the heterogeneity of of society. So, uh, so there's very little, so in your, in your world building that just that just comes in, uh, you know, because because within India, you know, there are each state has its own. Know, language, um, you know, it's its own specific history, its own food, its own traditions, you know. So, so you have the sense of 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 the diversity and the and the plurality of, of society baked into you, just as, even as you're growing up. Just you just internalize it. Uh, and secondly, uh, growing up in India, if you're growing up in India in in a you know relatively comfortable environment like I did, uh, you are by definition, at least bilingual, if not trilingual, because you you know English, uh, because that's the official language, it's the, it's the medium of instruction in schools, and you know, it's, it's the it's, it's government's language. Uh, and you also know the language of, of the place you're growing up in. So in my case, Hindi, and if you're from South India, you often will know five or six languages just as you're growing up. Uh, and that again feeds into, into your writings. Just, just the awareness that you kind of are thinking in two languages, uh, it always, you know, ensures that, that your world will also reflect um, you know the, the role that language plays in understanding and even constructing the world around you. Gautam, may I ask you a question? When you write, do you write? I mean, you write obviously the the bulk of your writing is is done in English immediately. But do you write some of the things in in other languages and then translate them? Some things uh, you can not, get not, not me. Not, not me. So so in India we have a very rich tradition of speculative fiction in various state languages in Maharashtra in the West and in Bengal in the East. They have they have 200, they have a two, two century old tradition of speculative fiction uh, in those languages. But um, but but if you grow up in a metropolis, uh, you ultimately end up becoming much more comfortable in English in terms of writing uh, than you do in, in other languages. Interesting, because my experience has been, uh, I, I want to express some things, not even in Russian, but in German. Because there, there, are, there are some shortcuts, yeah. which which I don't have in English. There's some shortcuts which, which I don't have in Russian, and some shortcuts which I don't have uh, in German. So I'm just, I'll be most comfortable writing like in in a mix of those three languages, I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, interesting. Can I ask a question as well? I mean, I'm sorry to be like doing a mini mini interview of you, but um, this question it's kind of got me curious. Um, I didn't catch um, what part of India you grew up in, but my question is if you have spent time in um, in an Indian metropolis or two, as well as a Western one, can you comment at all on, you know, because that is a world, I mean, a metropolis is a world unto itself, right? And do you, um, I think a lot of people who've grown up only in the West um, might think, well, a city is a city is a city, but the small amount of time I've spent in, in South Asian cities, 
makes me think that that may be a very specific experience that could inform your work in an interesting way. Um, that's that's absolutely correct. So I, I grew up in New Delhi and I've spent most of my of my uh, my school life and my working life uh, in in New Delhi. Um, and and of course, what we immediately have is a sense of density, um, a sense of of kind of constrained space, um, and and a sense of 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 size, uh, not in terms of of physical size, uh, but in terms of you know the number of people around you at all times. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that constant awareness of being in and and amidst crowds um, mm -hmm. is, is something that I think really um, really impacts uh, the way you conceive of of worlds and the way you build worlds uh, because that mm -hmm. that presence in your mind is never far away um, of, of the fact that you're kind of in and among kind of a, a multitude of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's very interesting, and, and and it almost goes back to the opposite of what I was saying because I find in in my world and, and the way I write, and it's something I've become cognizant of to some degree, is again, the, that idea that there is so much space, um, mm. where even relatively um, you know, poor or, or people who aren't that well-to-do have space. They have large homes, not necessarily you know, beautiful homes, but that they have this sense of space. And it's, it's a kind of idea that I'm just so used to with with this, like the houses I've lived in and, and everything and the cities I've lived in are all very vast in terms of the space that they take up. There's, there's just sort of, it all sprawls. And that's just kind of the way Ontario is. It's especially if you get into the Toronto area. Um, and I've, I've noticed some people in the comments uh, are also from Ontario. It's just this vast urban sprawl as opposed to that sort of really condensed urban environment. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, that's something that that's sort of like difficult to get my head around. And I have this, um, I have this sort of like kind of place, like I, almost a slum in, in one of my cities. And I have really difficulty um, kind of getting my head around what that experience is actually like. Um, and that idea of just that much humanity crammed into sort of one space um, is a really interesting idea and sort of like that difference of perspective. But you, Luke. I keep mean, on you. <laughs> <laughs> it, very quickly, is my audio any better? Yeah. 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 Okay. Perfect. Um, so I mean, we obviously have a new president of the United States, um, and I think we can agree that the last four years have been interesting to say the least. Um, but. A lot of the stuff that I that sort of trickles into my writing, I don't. It, it's not a, a conscious decision; it just happens. Um, and so, obviously, in the United States, the last four years with Trump, there, you know, a lot more uh, racism, prejudice, xenophobia, stuff like that. And I think that's maybe something that gets overlooked occasionally considering the United States. Um, people from the outside, people from the inside obviously think, you know, this is one great country, but um, there's a lot of disconnect. And, um, you know, I think for me personally, that's stuff, like I was saying, I, it, it's sort of a subconscious influence. Like it's stuff that annoys me and it's stuff that I feel like I have to, comment on 
in some sort of way. And it, 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 again, it ties into uh, mental health as well. I don't think that's something that people take seriously enough. Um, and it's not just the United States thing. It's a problem all over the world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Joe. Andrew, anything you want to say? Um, well, I'm in California uh, inside of the scarf. <laughs> I can't say that it really affects how I write. Um, like Luke, though, you know, I do live in the United States, so I think uh, definitely some of the political conversations that I've had with people are kind of kind of leaked their way into my book. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a way to kind of let out some of what I'm feeling or to work out like, you know, um, how I would try to explain something to somebody that maybe they don't understand in real life, but in the book they may understand. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, I can say that uh, definitely I'm guilty of like working through some stuff in my book. Yeah. Which is great. Which is, which is amazing. This is really great because it's when stuff wants to get out of you and knows your, you know, knows its way out of you, then and you put it on the page. I think this is what actually makes it truly original. In in my case, there is um, again in my latest novella, there is uh, there is a case where I um, subconsciously put myself, my own kind of experience into into the book in the sense that. There is a scene where the main character, who is um, who is uh, a disgraced lord, he arrives at the, in the in the province where they're building a huge tower, huge air defense tower, and he has to do a sparring match with the local politicians, you know, because they're not happy to see him. And there is a scene there right at the beginning where he he meets them for the first time and they have a very tense conversation. And I, I wrote it just like like in half an hour, really flowed. Oh well, cool. I'm probably at the top of my craft right now. And then I realized, okay, this is not really about the main character and the, those, those other guys. It's me at work in a, in a meeting with the, <laughs> with, the, with the managers, you know? So uh, those things just some, sometimes you put your living experiences just subconsciously into your writing and it's just, just to find the way, find the way in, even if you don't realize it. Gotcha. And I love how you started that, if I might, um, because, uh, you know, working things out, I so agree, is what, you know, that may be what our readers get most excited about, even if, you know, even if sometimes we think we're supposed to be getting to the big stuff or the, you know, the, the clash of civilizations or the, you know, the, the world redefining war or whatever. It's messed up people like are, you know, I don't know that anyone's ever sort of successfully asserted that well-adjusted people who've got all their shit worked out are fascinating on the on the page. However much we want to have admirable people that have the right kind of politics and the right kind of you know opinions about things and don't say bad stuff about anybody, we need and we all have that crud in us anyway, to varying degrees and varying matters. And to see somebody who doesn't get it right who's working through it is just, I mean, for me, that is, yeah. that's the dope. That really just brings me to life. And when it brings my reading life. Um, that's, that's so true. Fiction, so right? true. 
It's the crux. And I, the I guess crux. I'm making a little bit of a, um, you know, an editorial aside here that wasn't directly tied to the subject. Sorry, but I, I think that it's something we're contending with a bit with the very natural and incredibly overdue and admirable need to address, you know, so much buried shit about, you know, all kinds of prejudices that you're just, yeah. you know, that we are saturated and steeped in for, you know, so many generations. And naturally, we also want to see our characters, you know, be people that we admire. But I, I think that there, there's a, a bit of a problem now where people are being so careful to try to see that, well, you know, my character may be dealing with with one little thing that's very understandable because of their background, you know, of having been beaten up since they were three and having all their bones broken every four years or something. But basically they've got everything worked out and all their values are right. And that gets boring. And I right. think it's something that we're, 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 we're working through now in, in this moment in fantasy and science fiction. I mean, the, 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 the Mary Sue's and the perfect people are ultimately boring. And it's yeah. like, um, Lewis or C.S. Lewis's experience. I mean, he wrote the Screwtape Letters, which is is about this uh, devil trying to corrupt this, this person, and and it's all interesting and everything. And um, he tells a story about having tried to write the sort of an analog about an angel, and he couldn't write it because it was just so boring and so like good. And it was it's just like great. Everybody wants to be good in real life, but when you get in a story, it's boring there's no conflict there's no growth because you you don't come from a place into a place of depending on whether you know maybe it's more broken if you're like into the um like abercrombie type of fiction or um they get some sort of um redemption or something but i think it's definitely screwed up characters are the characters that make fiction worth reading and also deck um May I know, uh, just just make an observation that the, uh, the 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 characters who are really messed up, they also have a very very strong driver towards something, something yeah. that really drives them. They, they they really want something, and this is when you have uh, a messed up antagonist who who has a, like a devious plan, and sure this plan may be all messed up and very evil, but it's it's a very clear plan, and it's it's obviously a hurdle for the for the antagonist because if you can really easily implement this plan, then it's 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 not interesting. Whereas the protagonist may just as well react to the antagonist. So the the, the, the thing that drives the protagonist may be I want to stop the antagonist. So this immediately becomes less interesting than what concerns the antagonist. You know, so you just you become become involved in this evil plan, and you want to see it, uh, you know, come together uh, on a certain level. Yeah, it's it's, and I think we've gone down the rabbit hole to here to some degree, but um, we can bring it back. But it's like it's like the Joker Batman dichotomy, right? Like exactly. Um, in so many ways, in in those movies or, or films or comic books or whatever, where it is a Joker story, it's often the Joker that steals the show. Um, and there's a reason he's been named the greatest sort of villain of all time on so many lists. Um, yeah, the villains villains can be fascinating. Um, and I think we don't put enough stock into sort of great villains. Uh, Mag and so we're really down. But Magneto is another one that that I've always been fascinated with because of the sort of complex nature of of his driving force where it's like, I get it. Like I understand where you're coming from and why you're doing the things you do, and to me that can be really compelling. Um, 
and we've sort of like gone down a rabbit hole there, but. Uh. <laughs> it's fine, rabbit, rabbit holes are great. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that's maybe why Grimdark has gotten so big the past few years is because you have all of these characters that have no redeeming value whatsoever. And people want to know, A, why are they like that? And B, what are they going to do with that, you know, grit on their shoulder, uh, you know, per se. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I, I've, I've been reading a lot of, I don't know why, but January has been comics for me uh, so far. So, and Yaroslav's seen me on Goodreads. I mean, he's, he's thumbs, thumbs up everything that I've been reading, but uh, you know, yeah. I've read a lot of, uh, you know, Joker comics. So like, you know, Snyder came out with this whole like metal series and it's all about how like Batman started to kind of like turn into this like corrupted type, you know, individual. And then you've got Joker on the other end that's, you know, continuously like pushing him to the edge. Um, and, and it's just, it's just so fascinating. Yeah. Cause you know, like Andrew was saying earlier, she thought that, you know, everybody was a farm boy turned hero and that's just old at this point. It's, I mean, it, it's great. And, you know, I didn't grow up reading a lot of those stories, but you know, for, for teach their own, but yeah, it's something about it now. It's just, I, I love reading, flawed characters and just kind of seeing how far they get pushed until you know it ends if it if it ever does Go read you know, i think it touches back on the idea that nothing is right. completely black and white yeah, yeah. oh yeah just wait to the anti-heroes panel and really interested to, to, to talk about morally gray here you know it characters because i feel like that's just all, all we're about nowadays i think it also speaks to the idea that the, that the point of a good speculative fiction novel is not to answer the questions but to kind of give you the questions and then you know make sure that both sides have good arguments and then leave you to to select the answer you want as the reader yeah mm -hmm. yeah um so question from the audience so this is uh the other day i filled out a survey about maps and books would like to know if maps for the worlds or story you create are important or if they're not and what's your opinion on them? yeah 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 so much i always right. want them and it's probably because i'm an old D, &D player but yes that's i say yes yeah. for two reasons one for the same i grew up reading uh, the Bulgariad, Shannara, um, all these books, and they all had the maps, and, and I was totally like dive into them, and, and just you're reading, flipping back, seeing where they are. Um, so I love the map. I don't feel that a fantasy novel is complete without one. So that's part of it. The other one is that I, I actually draw maps. So if you look at uh, my books, um, I've done all my own maps, um, and I did uh, for um, Angela Broods, um, I did hers as well. So uh, I have a bit of a vested interest in that. It's it's one of the other things that I just love to do is is drawing and creating maps. So uh, yes. Do you take commissions? What's that? Do you I take do. commissions? So all of a sudden, uh, we'll talk. <laughs> uh, I would say yes that they're important, especially from a writer's point of view, just because. So I I unfortunately. Um, I'm a little loose with the details when I write my rough draft. <laughs> so I usually will write the rough draft and then realize I have no idea where I put everything. And then I have to go back through and kind of make it consistent. And in doing so, I have to draw something of a map. Um, so yeah, and I remember like when I was 
getting my book published, they were like, oh, like, should we do a map for this? And do you want to, I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and I had to like redraw everything because I'd thrown out my like little reference thing that just had circles of like, hey, uh, the islands are like over here and some of them are over here. So I'd actually like go back and do something that could be legible. <laughs> I need a map to farmhouse. Uh, just for like a scene, right? Like to be able to say, okay, like where are people moving around in this scene? And, and like, does it make sense? And the same house is in multiple books. So like, I want the same, I don't want that kind of like, oh, they changed houses halfway, like in the second season. So just those uh, consistency details and just making sure and, and sort of when I'm in the city, like, are they looking east? And yeah, I think just from like a getting my head around where people are in space, it, I need them. Um, yeah, that's like what I, that's what I get on editorial notes is I don't know where everything is. And then I draw like a little diagram so I can figure out where everything is too. Yeah. <laughs> There's a deeply, deeply visual genre, right? So the map really helps you to see um, it, uh, see the world. And so I, I think that, that, yeah, it's just integral, integral to it in most cases. And especially if you're telling a story with, um, multiple locales happening at the same time, you know, as opposed to just maybe something, a, a linear journey where, you know, you can, even if you don't know where a spot on the map, you're always with the same people and wherever they are is where you are. But if you're, um, you know, I, I had it in my, my first series, it was going on on three continents and two hemispheres all at the same time. And uh, yeah, the maps, plural, were so important. They were, they were also important for me um, to just, uh, to, to sort of make a mental uh, pigeonhole for, you know, oh, I'm in this writer's brain if I'm writing about, you know, this empire right now. And um, yeah, they were really, really crucial that way. Uh, but but not for every kind of book. And, and, you know, I had an editor once who just, he was an epic fantasy editor and he hated maps. And he said, you know, it's a crutch. You know, if, if your reader can't understand your story without a reference to the map, maybe you haven't written a very good book. Wow. Which terrified me because I love Matt so much. Then, um, you know, then I realized, okay, he's reading the whole thing without looking at the map because he didn't want to see it, and he likes it. So I guess I'm safe. You know, <laughs> you just put the map in for your sake. <laughs> Maps should always be supplemental for sure. The reader should never need to rely on the map to get the story, but I think the map can really help bring out the story. And and I think. I read fantasy. Um, it's basically all I've read for since I was 14. I don't want to do the math of how long that's been now. But um, for me, and I, I think for people in, in this genre in general, there's the love of the story, but there's also just the love of the world and getting to know and sort of even like transporting yourself and your disease into that world. So um, there's the story, but there's also just like, I just, want to know about this place and the space. Um, so that really helps bring that um, to life. And especially as we've got that crossover from the role-playing world into the fantasy world, um, where there's there's obviously, I think, a ton of crossover in that. And so we want to experience these, these books um, in the same way that we would experience a game or, or a video game. Uh, I grew up playing all the Final Fantasy games and, and maps were a huge part of that as well. So um, yeah, I think they were the greatest times. 
Um, so yeah, so definitely, I think it's it's should be supplemental, um, but is really beneficial to readers who want that extra, um, whatever it is to sort of digest and, and sort of imagine. Hmm. Yeah, true. Um, so a question from Arena uh, a little earlier. How much can thinking about the audience influence what goes into a book before it's even published, if at all? Um, I guess I'll start. I, I don't write for a particular audience, I don't think. I just kind of write for myself and hope that people will connect with it. Um, I think anyone who's read my work knows I'm a huge advocate for you know, mental health. Um, and so that's a lot of what I deal with. And as I mentioned before, I know there are a lot of people who probably connect with that. And so I just, I obviously, because I deal with anxiety and depression um, of my own, I try to, you know, really address the subject while also being sensitive of it because it's not, it's obviously not something that's delicate. You don't want to just throw in there Nilly willy, like you know, like with anything, you want to be sensitive to the subject. But while look, I completely agree with you. Uh, but there is, I also feel that almost the whole time when we're when we're writing, we're also keeping the audience in mind because this is part of the craft, right? So we have like the first sentence, the first paragraph, the first 250 words, the first uh, chapter and so on. And you know that you have to hook the reader. And I don't know how it is for you guys. For me, it's um, very often I would have a pretty solid outline, which I would follow, but I would change the, the beginning quite a lot because uh, it, it would be either, you know, too, um, too overwhelming for a person who is, has not yet immersed themselves into the world or maybe not engaging enough, not 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 fast paced enough. So uh, I feel that the craft itself dictates that you write half the time you write for yourself, and half the time you write for the audience, keeping the audience in mind and keeping the people entertained. Right. I think I think this is a very interesting question in the perspective of global global SFF because uh, a couple of years ago I remember reading and, and reviewing a novel called David Mogo God Hunter by Sui Davies who's now coming out with Son of the Storm uh, this year and so so that that novel was set is set in Lagos and and it ha it, and it it's really heavily uh, um, you know kind of uh, features the geography of of Lagos um, and and as I was reading it I was unable to to uh, you know picture where the action was was going on and it, it then struck me that that if i was for example reading uh, you know uh, neil gaiman's neverwhere one of those books which is set in, in in london i know exactly where highbury and islington are because you know i've grown up um, knowing those names and and kind of always knowing what london looks like i don't know what the third bridge of lagos is and, and what it looks like so basically i had the wikipedia page of lagos open while i was reading uh, the novel um, and and the novel is, novel is excellent and so uh, but it did it did require me to to do a little work uh, to follow uh, the novel and to follow the writer i think that that's i think that's fair to expect uh, the audiences to to, to do uh, especially if you're writing from a place where you know which is not maybe that uh, um, has not historically been featured in these kinds of novels um, so i guess like it's, it's a bit of a balancing act i mean you don't want to alienate readers and make things impenetrable uh, but i think that if you can tell a good story uh, while being true to your principles 
the readers will make the effort of 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 following you a little bit you know and at least having the wikipedia map of lagos open while they read you uh, so it's an interesting balancing act to pull i think yeah, yeah i totally agree and um, right. I, I would just uh, I would say that in my experience i mean I, I certainly i don't write the way i write for myself i mean probably the first writing i ever did at any length was journal writing and um and when i began get to get interested in writing stories i knew i couldn't use that voice because the voice of my journal wouldn't be intelligible to anyone else or, or interesting to anyone else um you know it was nothing but rabbit holes one after another um uh, but i certainly try to um keep myself enthralled as i would be uh, if, if i were the reader um as part of it um you know if i'm not having a blast myself uh Discovering the story as I write it, probably nobody else will I imagine. Um, but then there's a, another kind of imagined audience that I, I realized over time that I, I work with, and that is, I sort of have a partly abstract ideal reader in mind. I mean, I don't think it's it's really possible to write for everyone. I mean, you may be lucky and find that your work resonates with a very big audience. I'm still waiting for that luck to strike. You know, at least the, the vast, endless audience that will let me retire in my you know, Virginia mansion somewhere, but, um, but um, you know, it, it, at a very sort of private level, I, I have, uh, you know, a, uh, a couple of old, old friends who are always sort of there in my mind as the kind of ideal listener slash reader. You know, I, I, part of me is telling the story as if we both have our feet up on couches and we're just talking. Um, and that, that helps keep it real for me in a way. And also it, it sort of gives me permission to let that, that fun in, I think, if you know what I mean, the sort of, you know, wild delight that you may let yourself have when you're telling stories with a friend. Um, so for whatever that's worth, that's kind of my practice. But Robert, I think you've said a wonderful thing, a very important thing, because this for me has always been the truth that, that the uh, how to tell whether the audience will enjoy your, your work. If you're enjoying it yourself, if you haven't blast writing it and then reading it, then the audience will have a blast too. And this is something my my uh, guitar teacher once told what's told me. So, I, I was studying guitar with a New York teacher, and and um, on guitar you play polyphony. So you, you play, for example, the bass line and the and the leading line, uh, and it's called voice leading. You know, the ability to play multiple lines at the same time. And I asked him once, you know, hey, how do you make it intelligible? How do you make it really sound to the, you know, sound like two different different guitars to the audience? It's very simple, Yari. You just, you play it. If you yourself hear it, then the audience will hear it. I think the same thing with the, you're absolutely correct, same thing with the with literature. So if you're having a blast writing it and then reading this, what you've written, then the audience will have a blast too. And it's kind of what people say about getting married too. Like, like if you're... Who's going to have fun at my wedding? How can I make it fun? Well, you're getting married. You've got to be sure you enjoy it. That may not be sufficient, but it is necessary to other people enjoy it. <laughs> that is very true. Uh, for me, when I started, um, when I wrote like the Riven Realm novellas, which is sort of like my main series right now, if you will, um, I just took the maximum of like, I am my own audience. I'm writing for people like me with my tastes. Um, I want to write something that I would like to sit down and read. So that was sort of like the way I approach fiction. But um, 
about a year and a half ago, I really had to shift my, my thinking to some degree because my kids were like, they want something. Like my daughter was really interested in the world and they're like, write something for us. So I was like, okay. And then I sat down and I started working on this story, which became um, my book called The Portal of Tears Beyond the Shimmering. And um, and that one I really did have my audience. Um, more so in terms of like language selection so that I wasn't using, so I was using language that, that my kids could understand. Um, no also, swear words? Uh, I don't, I try not to swear uh, anyhow. Um, so that's just sort of my vibe. Um, but yeah, definitely not. Even that I, I tuned down. Um, the Ribbon Realm books can have a few moments of like pretty intense violence. Um, and there's some like slightly darker themes. Um, I would never- Kids love that. Kids love that stuff. <laughs> I would never describe myself as, as dark, um, but there are some, some darker moments. So I had to like really, it was an interesting experience to then have to really sort of take myself out of my head where I'm used to writing and sort of think and take my daughters as the audience. Okay, how would my kids react to this? Um, and it was an interesting experience because it's the first time I'd really done that. Because up to that point, I'd always really just kind of written for the me's of the world. Hmm. Awesome. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm kind of out of questions. Anybody else uh, in the audience have any questions? Go ahead and pop them in. But um, kind of while we're uh, we're waiting on them, I, I want everybody because I know Luke's gonna go here in a few. So I want everybody to take an opportunity and talk about a recent release, an upcoming release, something you're excited about in the next year or two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever you want to do, everybody, you know, take a couple of minutes and talk about it. And uh, Gautam, we'll start with you again. Oh, me? Yeah, oh, thanks. So I think as I said in the beginning, um, I had my debut uh, novel, The Wall, come out uh, in August of 2020. It's a, a social um, spec speculative fiction broadly in, you know, in the tradition of Ursula Le Guin and that, that kind of writing, uh, obviously influenced by, by Indian myth and by Indian history, uh, but not, you know, it's, it's I, I wouldn't call it an, an Indian speculative fiction novel, although traces of, of Indian history and myth are there. Uh, it's the first part of a duology. Um, the, uh, the sequel is due in September of this year. That will finish the duology. And broadly, it's a society that's been contained within a very high physical wall for 2000 years that has kind of affected the way the society has developed, evolved, hierarchies, and so on. Uh, language, there's no word for the horizon. So people try to imagine the horizon and like the book is about how, you know, people try and find a way beyond it. So that's what the duology is about. Uh, that's basically occupied me for the last three years and now it's it's just about finished. So yeah. Nice. All right, Doug. Um, so like I was just talking about, um, I wrote this book for my kids. So I just happened to have it right here. Um, so it's called The Portal of Tears, Beyond the Shimmering. It's the first in uh, what I, should be a trilogy um so that's it's set in the same world uh, all the stuff that i write is, is set in the same world uh, it's about um a young girl a 13 year old girl who uh, basically has to fight to save her family and goes um beyond this thing called the shimmering which is the divide between humans and the world of the fae um and she just kind of has to learn about herself and and um, learn about others and learn about breaking down prejudices and, and things 
um, to save to save her family. So uh, that's only been out for for about a, two months now, uh, and now I'm just working diligently on the next uh, couple novellas in my Riven Realm series. Robert, um, sorry, I'm not muted, right? No, sorry. No, you're good. Um, my screen went blip blip. Um, so I'm in the middle of this, uh, my second epic fantasy series, it's called The Fire Sacraments. And uh, book one was Master Assassins, came out in 2018. And um, book two is uh, coming out in May. It's called Sidewinders. And it, the, the actual release hasn't happened yet, but I can flash the cover on my iPad. Da, 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 da. I love it so much. It looks like an old vintage Yes album, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Sidewinders is... Um, it, well, the whole the whole trilogy centers on these two brothers who um, are peasant soldiers drafted into a um, mad religious war they really want no part of. Um, and one of them is pretty much sane and straight laced, and the other is a train wreck of an individual who's uh, it's quite astonishing he's lived to uh, 24 years old. Um, and uh, they get in terrible, terrible trouble because they kill the favorite son of their their people's um, messiah, essentially. And um, their only hope for not being um, killed, um, tortured to death, is to flee into um, the, the largest desert on the continent. And, um, and at the same time, I said it's, it's, a, it's a war story because the, the, the refuge they're seeking is at the center of all kinds of intrigue, um, a 3,000-year-old fortress city that has never yet been taken, but times change. And there's a global plague uh, that, as I said at the beginning, definitely, you know, this story preceded uh, COVID by a couple of years in my imagination. But the, the plague is actually called the throat rust. And um, I just wish that what I was imagining didn't mirror reality quite so much. It's, it's a very, very weird feeling right now. But... Um, that's, that's it. I'm, I'm having a blast with these extremely problematic brothers. So, there you are. Luke? Um, so my most current release is called The World Maker Parable. It's a psychological dark fantasy novella. Um, it was inspired primarily by Dante's The Inferno. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's a examination of um you know mental health and stuff like that but it's primarily about a woman who is forced to choose between sacrificing the woman she loves or um basically ignoring the power structure of the city that she lives in and she chooses the former unfortunately and so it really it, the story ends up being an examination of guilt that the tagline is um guilt will always call you back hell is a place of one's own making and so it really kind of examines those two themes awesome andrea <laughs> so i mentioned already um so my debut uh, epic fantasy the bone shard daughter is out with orbit books it came out in september um and it is uh epic fantasy it's set on an archipelago of islands. Um, it's Asian inspired setting. Uh, and it's definitely 
it's kind of under the backdrop of um, a brewing revolution. Um, so it follows like several main characters. There's uh, five point of view characters. So there's um, a daughter who's trying to reclaim her place as heir and she's trying to live up to these lofty expectations of her father. There's a smuggler who professors that he doesn't care about everything that's going on, but um, can't stop to see, can't seem to stop from doing good things. Uh, and there's two women who are in an established relationship who are kind of struggling with the class differences between them. And then there's uh, a woman who's on yeah, this uh, distant yeah, island who is um, trying to figure out why she's there and what her purpose is, basically. Oh, and there's bone shard magic. So that seems to people seem to like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Yaroslav. Yeah, I'm going to do the same thing that Rob did, and I'm going to flash uh, uh, an iPad under uh, this angle. So this is my latest novella, Tower of Modern Straw, which comes out in paperback and ebook on the 21st of February. And uh, it's uh, the genre is incredibly difficult to pinpoint. A few reviewers tried that. Uh, they admitted that they couldn't succeed. It's somewhere, I think, between Gaslam fantasy and uh, magical realism. It's about a disgraced lord who arrives in the province uh, and has to oversee the construction of a huge uh, 2,000 feet uh, anti-air uh, anti uh, airship defense tower. And uh, this tower has been built using a magical or half magical technology brought by the refugees from another world. And he finds out that the construction of the tower has profound consequences for both worlds. Um, but uh, really, it's a, it's a story uh, about how uh, about wanting to return to a certain place in your own past, and about how uh, past relationships influence and define our future relationships. And this is this book is very much driven by my own uh, like half subconscious desire to return to a certain place in my own past, a certain half-defined feeling that keeps pulling, pulling me back to this place in the past. And uh, this is, um, this permeates this particular book. And on top of that, if uh, anybody's a Game of, uh, of Thrones fan, uh, the the guy who played Sirio Pharrell is doing the audio for Tower yeah. of Thrones, and it's phenomenal. I've listened to it. It's, it's freaking fantastic. So uh, definitely, definitely check that out. All right. So we, we did get one last question, man. We got a few, but I, I want to ask this one. Um, what do most writers, so, so you guys on this panel, what do you think is the most challenging thing about building multicultural and diverse worlds on the page? Not everybody talk at once. <laughs> uh, I think it's being, um, sensitive, uh, to, to other cultures um, and and just trying to make sure that you do it in a way that that is uh, respectful if you're if you're drawing things um, and that isn't um, a caricature. Uh, that's always the thing that that I worry the most about, uh, especially if I'm dealing with something that's not like essentially British or, or um, you know from my sort of ancestral background. Um, I always want to make sure that that everything that I do is is done, um, you know, with respect and uh, and dignity for the for the people, um, which can sometimes be 
challenging um from more from just like a perspective of like am i doing this well enough um and you sort of try to try to balance that uh, but at the same time wanting to make sure that um i do include people so that that it's not just another um you know a bunch of white people running around um in sort of fantasy because um, you know we've had enough of that i think I think I think I think actually leading on from that, I think the the I think the, the big risk for me is the risk of of flatness, um, because I think it's important to remember that no culture is a monolith, um, and and there's always cultural dissent. You know, within culture, there's always a contest of who gets to define what the culture is and what the norms are. And so I think there's always a risk that when you're portraying another culture, you're going to end up um, through the depictions, you know, empowering those who already hold power to decide, you know. How to project that culture, or you know, in, into the, onto the world stage. I could give you an example once more. And whenever there's a conversation, you know, about uh, Indian myths or mythologies or you know, Indian epics, there's always, in all those epics, there's always a there's always been a battle over caste, uh, which is a part of Indian society. And there, and there are always those issues uh, about you know uh, how those myths relate to the question of caste. So if you kind of uncritically uh, portray uh, you know, an Indian myth or an Indian epic, without that awareness, it could end up actually le legitimizing certain kinds of, you know, caste practices or domination. So I think that that, that uh, understanding that the other culture will have its own battles, internal battles, um, and how to kind of just, well, without, you know, taking so much time into research that you won't have time for anything else, obviously, uh, but just to have an awareness that the way they exist and how to deal with them, I think is very important. I mean, I, I hear a, a lot of conversations going on in science fiction and fantasy right now um, that bring me back to, you know, the, the, the refrain, which is one that I would agree with, is that um, traditionally, for, for too long, we have not had enough care in um, watching ourselves in the act of appropriation and trying not to appropriate stories that, um, uh, you know, that uh, white folks in the West may just not understand, not not have lived, but be in a, a privileged position to be published telling nonetheless. And I think it's, you know, very overdue and very healthy to um, take a step back from doing that and and ask yourself, you know, how much do you really know to be telling this story? Um, and should you... Should you take that step or not? And the answer is not always, no, don't take that step, play it cautious, by, by no means whatsoever. But if you do take that step, be very aware of what you're doing. Um, the, um, the burden that you're taking on to try to get it right, the, um, the responsibility to, to not caricature, as Dex says. And, and also, I mean, I think in a way, it's a, it's a subset of the, the need in fiction generally never to deny the true complexity of, of a human situation. Um, it's just that when we do that, when we, um, when we flatten out, as Gautam says, when we, when we iron out or, or airbrush out the complexity in another culture, we are you know, perhaps making it more palatable to a certain readership um, at the expense of, of telling the truth or, or making a good faith effort to tell the truth of a, of a 
um, of a vital situation. Um, my first uh, novel, which is not published except in, in excerpts, um, concerns the uh, the dictatorship in Argentina in the late 70s um, and is, is set in that time. And um, I was there in the early 90s and in the late 90s in Argentina. Um, and my, you know, to whatever degree this novel succeeded or didn't, um, the first attempt definitely didn't succeed. And I, uh, it was a great lesson to me because after about 200 pages, I realized that I was attempting an authority in telling this this tale, which was sort of the defining national tragedy of Argentina, the dirty war and the desaparecidos and so on, that um, readers would have been better off reading a lot of wonderful Argentinian literature on that than my attempt to to claim the telling of the story. The second attempt, which I think is much more successful, whether it's 100% successful or not, um, the the limits of comprehension are built into the main point of view character. The, the character, instead of me trying to take on the voice of an insider who really understands everything, I'm, I'm writing from someone who has a connection to Argentina, but who fundamentally doesn't get a lot of it. And having a character, you know, I, I had to actually, I guess, get to the point where I was not too afraid to write a character who didn't get it. And then I could allow in a constellation of voices from Argentinians that I'd gotten to know very, very well. Um, and they didn't agree. They didn't interpret their history the same way and so on. But um, and perhaps I arrived at some more humility there. Um, but I think I'm also going to be finding out how well I've done with this in my current series because, um, well, uh, I've taken shelter in not writing about this world, the world we inhabit for a long time since I started writing epic fantasy. So the crisis of authenticity is sort of displaced a bit there. But um, I'm writing about a, a continent where no one's ever met a white person. It's also a continent that has never been colonized. Um, it is, it's fundamentally a different history. I'm trying to imagine a different history, at least, than the one that is... Um, you know, than the, the many histories that uh, have manifested in this world. Um, and yet I'm a white guy writing about people of color exclusively and trying to imagine what it might mean to be a, um, a person who's never experienced that kind of racism, although many, many kinds of racism exist within the continent that I've imagined. So got long-winded again, sorry, but uh, it's, a, it's a fundamentally difficult thing and, and, a, and a great effort that I think we, we take on, you know, because we must if we're going to write about other cultures. Um, I just wanted to jump in um, on this question. I definitely agree with everything that's been said as far as being sensitive to other cultures and making sure that you're not having something that's two-dimensional. Um, in addition to that, I just wanted to add, like, personally, what I found most difficult is um, remembering everything and keeping things consistent <laughs> as far as like, okay, so in this part of the world, you know, they eat this and this is their culture here and this is what they wear. And, you know, I'll forget about that when <laughs> I'm like writing a later part and I have to go back and fix that. So I think um, whenever you're creating a world and you're creating this place where you do want it to have depth and you do want to have uh, these different cultures within your world, you do have to keep track of where all those things are, what food they're eating, what's being grown, and what they're wearing, and how they interact in different parts of the world. So, 
yeah, that's what I personally found most difficult. Yeah. I mean, I don't have much to add, but uh, what Gautam said really resonated with me. And I think it's it's very important because our mandate as, as authors is, is similar to the mandate of, of surgeons and, and, and doctors, you know, and the first thing is not to do harm. You know, this is, we should always keep in mind that uh, our writing and the work we do uh, has great influence. And this is on one hand, a source of great joy. Uh, on the other hand, it's a great responsibility and we should never forget that, definitely. Absolutely. Well, uh, well everybody, um, I think this is gonna conclude our first panel of TBRCon. Uh, so I wanna thank uh, everybody that's that's tuned in and I especially wanna thank my panelists for taking the time of the day to, to come chat and uh, you know, make sure that you check all these authors out uh, and continue to watch this week. We have several more panels to go, uh, including uh, one upcoming here in just a little over 30 minutes called World Building and Your Place in It. Um, Beth Tabler will actually be moderating that one. So uh, you won't get to see my pretty face uh, until tomorrow morning. But uh, but just again, thank you all so much and, uh, and stay tuned. Thank you so much. Thank you to a great audience. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for all the questions. Thanks so much. Conversation, it was so much fun, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. A pleasure. It was great Thank fun, you guys. You're great.